this is Advent, so you guys are, are, are participating in Advent. Advent is kind of a weird, a weird thing. Um, I think in our Western headspace, uh, if we were to design the church calendar, which I didn't know if you knew this, last week was the beginning of the new year for the Christian calendar. And because the Christian calendar starts at the beginning of Advent. And I think in our Western headspace that if we would have done and designed the calendar, we would have said, no, 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 your new year starts on the 25th because that's when it all happens, right? It's just like it's the hoopla and it's just like blah, blah, this kind of stuff. But people who came before us in their wisdom said, no, you guys need time to prepare. This is a big deal. So we're going to give you four weeks. We're going to give you four weeks. The year is actually going to start and then you got four weeks to get ready to prepare. And that's what the Advent is all about. It's preparation for the coming of the King, the preparation for Christmas, the preparation for the coming of what's called the incarnation of God in flesh. And th this incarnation isn't something we talk about often, right? We say things like, um, Jesus is God, um, but we don't always spend a lot of time with that thought. We don't always let it sink in, let the reality of that shape our thinking, our hearts, or our practice. But this idea of incarnation, the idea that God took on flesh in the form of Jesus is actually like central to Christian thought. We can't get away from it. And it should be central to our practice. And it's why Christmas is, is such a big deal for us. I, I often hear people lament that, it's, oh, it's too bad like, that we downplay Easter and we, we, like, everybody gets all excited about Christmas. It's just like Easter is very important, but you don't have Easter without Christmas. This is the, like kind of the foundational piece, this incarnational bit. God coming to earth in human form changes everything. And over the next few weeks, I, that, this is what I hope we can walk through, is we can walk through this idea of incarnation as we prepare for Christmas. And I hope we can unpack this Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. God with us, of Jesus Christ, the word of God, sent to be with us. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to start off in the Old Testament. And we're going to go Old Testament, then we'll do Gospels, and then we'll go into uh, one of the letters, and that's kind of how we'll move through all of Scripture. But we're going to start in the Old Testament, specifically with one of the prophets. And we're going to read Zechariah 9. And we'll talk a little bit about the whole, the whole chapter, but we'll really focus on uh, 9 to 12, so we'll read that together this morning. I'm reading with the NLT, if you, which is the New Living Translation, if you care to know. So rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. Just a bit of context for this, this passage. It was, it's written about 600 years before Jesus was born. And it's written, but after the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem. Okay? 
And the Babylonians came in, basically decimated Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, destroyed the walls, and took most of the people of Jerusalem into exile. So they brought them back to, um, to Babylon to live in kind of a forced servitude, slavery kind of thing. And about 70 years after this took place, descendants of the exiles began to return to Jerusalem. So they're coming home, right? And if you've ever been away from home for 70 days, you know that sense of coming home. So these people are coming home for the first time in 70 years. And so I'm sure you can imagine that after seven years of exile, the hope was running high, right? They're just like, things are gonna maybe get back to normal. It's like the end of a pandemic. Maybe things will get back to normal, right? Hopes are running high for this restoration of Israel and its, its monarchy for its king. And you hear this in, in particular, I think, in the words of Jeremiah, uh, which is written about the same time. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is... This is the name by which we are called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. There's dreams of a restored land, of a new king. But these dreams, these hopes, they never came to be. They never materialized. See, because the foreign Persians, they remained in charge for another 200 years, even after they came home. So people started coming home. They thought, we're going to get our city. We're going to get our king back. It didn't happen. And then eventually when the Persians were replaced, when the Babylonians were replaced, it wasn't with an Israelite king, but with the Greeks and then with the Roman overlords that they had. And the book of Zechariah is written in the context of this post-exile, of they have come home, right? And they're trying to figure out what their new normal is. And this, the first portion of Zechariah 1 to 8, they were written kind of in the area, so they had just come home. Um, they were just come home from exile. And then chapters 9 to 14, where we started written, they came later. They came about nearing the end, they, they assume, of the Persian occupation, so in about 200 years. And so you can tell that the, 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 the frustration and the bitterness of foreign rule, it wasn't new, it wasn't fresh. There's less... Um, there's almost like a bitterness mixed with hopefulness at this point that, that is coming to the surface. And like this is a total side note and doesn't have much to do, but I just have to point it out because I love the words in verse 12. It says, prisoners who still have hope. But if you read it in a, in different, the NIV um, and many other translations translate it prisoners of hope, right? And you, you get this poignant image of what it's like to be waiting for something to change, for something to be different. And we wish kind of that we could give up, but we're prisoners of the hope we have for something to be different. And this is what the, the Israelite people are living in in this moment. And these words in Zechariah, they come after long decades of yearning for restoration. And they reflect this persistence of hope that even when its fulfillment seems less and less likely, when things look like they're never gonna return to normal, the hope of a savior, a king from the line of David, persists. The hope persists. And so if you, 
if you look at this passage that we read in just the, the verses before it in 1 to 8, it, it's basically there's a, a picture of a divine warrior sweeping down the Mediterranean coast through all of the different, um, at one time, enemies of Israel and coming down pretty heavy on them. And it sweeps down the Mediterranean coast, but it sweeps in such a way that it doesn't appear to do so like we would expect. Because if you expect, picture this divine warrior, and this is what I think Zechariah does in, in, when he's writing, writing this, is it's like, yes, the enemies will be overturned as the king returns to home, because that's what they're hoping for. But then all of a sudden, this divine warrior finally comes into Jerusalem. But it's not as they expected. Because this divine warrior comes in riding a what? A donkey. Have you guys seen military monuments? You ever seen a military monument with a guy riding a donkey? It doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. See, th this divine warrior is not leading a charge. But when he returns to Israel, he comes in on a donkey. Righteous and victorious, the, this king, right? Righteous and victorious, he has overturned the enemies, and he comes into Jerusalem, and it's highly unusual. He does not come mounted on the war horse, all pompous, riding high, looking out, as if, looking out over his people as we would have expected. He comes humbly riding on a donkey. And there's no denying that this is a different kind of image of a king. This is, and that this is going to be a very different sort of king, not what was expected by the people of Jerusalem. And it's exasperated by the king's first decrees, which we read in verses 10, 11, and 12. He, he actually decrees a disarmament and a prisoner release. Verse 10, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. Some people want to read this as, oh, he's taking the enemy's weapons away. And this is like, no, he's taking all of the weapons away. The king is showing up in peace on a donkey and saying, actually, we're just going to do away with that entirely. Because it's not even going to have an option. I don't need it. And he goes further. He's actually going to release the prisoners. It doesn't specify which prisoners. It just says all of them. And you get that this, these tools, which are so often used by people in power, by positions of power, is not, are not going to be tools that are used by the coming king. This is not your typical king. Zechariah envisioned a leader, a savior, who would live without the excesses of the previous kings, without the excesses that marked the leadership of Solomon and David, right? Zechariah envisioned a king who would live righteously and lead justly, but probably most significantly would live humbly. Unlike other leaders who rode horses, symbols of victory in war, Israel's leaders, leader would instead ride a donkey. He would lead by per persuasion, not by coercion or physical military force of any kind. 
and it emphasizes this, right, in the disarmament and the release of the prisoners. These are, prisoners, these are tools that will not be necessary. In this way, the king would rule not just Israel, but all the nations, all the world. And this kind of sounds beautiful, right? On paper, at least. It's a little bit harder to swallow when we start to live it out. This Because this, this passage famously finds its counterpart in, in Jesus, right? We all know, like, no big surprise, that king, that king who Zachariah was talking about is Jesus. And we see Jesus kind of declare himself into this full identity that he will be the one that the people are looking for when he sends his disciples to get the donkey, which he will ride into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, 5 says, Jesus says, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He quotes Zechariah 9 almost verbatim. And when I'm reading this again, I'm struck by this phrase, look, your king is coming to you. Jesus is coming to us with a battle already won, already over. Have you seen those movies? Like a, uh, there's loads of them. I was trying to th think of a specific one, but it loses it because most of us haven't all seen the same thing. But you see a battle movie, and there's always, there's always this moment where the king or the leader, they either fall, right? Or their, their, their little uh, their flag falls and everybody kind of freaks out, oh no, the king. Or that the king kind of like walks out onto the battlefield in that last moment to kind of turn the tide. And everybody rallies and like screams and raises their swords and it's like, to the king, to the king. I think that's how we picture like Christian faith being. I think that that's often how we live is we think, oh, we have to rally, we have to raise our weapons and run to the king. But Jesus really turns this on its head and changes it. This, this prophecy of, the, of a king coming doesn't come to rally us to war, but comes instead with the war already over, with the fighting already done. And our Savior, our King, our Jesus, doesn't say, come to me, but instead says, I'm coming to you. And Jesus comes humbly to us. This is Emmanuel, God with us. God, come to us. Christ Jesus, our Savior. Come, righteous, victorious, but humble. So humble as to come on a donkey. So humble as to be God, but to come as a human. And not just like manifest as a fully grown human, but as a baby. And I'll, I'll be straight up, I'm not a, not a baby person. <laughs> just not a, not a fan. When, you know, when, when people are like, do you want to hold our baby? It's like, no. I just don't. <laughs> I don't have that. And so I don't think I fully grasped like the helplessness. So it's like the helplessness of a baby until I had my own and like, you have to hold your own. Um, <laughs> I love my kids, but I'm very excited for them 
to not be babies. <laughs> right? But the, there, is, there is something like disturbingly helpless about an infant. So with that in mind, the God of the universe, the creator of everything, said, I'm going to come like that. Helpless, totally at the mercy of a teenage mom and a dad who was contemplating leaving. It's mind-boggling that the creator of the universe would limit himself in this way. It's so mind-boggling that it's actually it's easy for us to question, question if this is actually the way it should be. Right? Because you're just like, really? Like, we have to lay, we have to get rid of all of our armament? We, ke we can just keep a few nukes, right? We can just, we can, uh, we can keep a few war horses. I'm encouraged that when we, we question Jesus, we find ourselves in good company. Because John the Baptist, who was the foreteller, the forerunner of Jesus, also questioned Jesus. When he was imprisoned, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the Messiah we have been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? And when John was in a form of exile, when he was in prison and waiting to be released, he questioned. I think just like a lot of us question in that moment of hardship, we wonder, are we sure this is actually what we want? And I love that John questions because, I don't know about you, but I like company sometimes. And so having this, this questioning John gives me a bit, of, a bit of release because I ask those questions, and I think most of us do, right? We think, really? On a donkey? You wanted to come as a baby? And you know, sometimes I, I, I question about the faith, and I wonder, is Jesus the one that we've been waiting for? Or is there something else? And you know what? To be honest, often, is Jesus the one I've been waiting for? The answer is actually no. But not because Jesus isn't actually the answer but because my questions have been wrong. Because I have been someone who has refused to embrace a humble God. Because I want to craft God in the proud image of myself. I want the victorious and righteous faith that doesn't show up on a donkey. I want the Jesus who flips tables and gives smart aleck remarks to religious leaders. I want the Jesus resurrected, righteous, victorious. And when I turn to Jesus, he continually shows up as a baby and on a donkey. Showing me and calling me back to a life lived in humility. And this isn't the answer when I was looking for when I questioned and I don't think I'm alone. A lot of us, a lot of Christians, a lot of, a lot of churches cannot reconcile the humility of Christ with the righteous victoriousness of Christ. We ignore, and so we choose to ignore the, the humility and instead embrace 
and focus entirely on the victorious righteousness. And they and myself inevitably in those moments become what I, I have coined and affectionately called jerks for Jesus. <laughs> you know, right? Because when we're righteous and victorious and without the humility, it leads us away from the character of Christ. It leads us actually away from humility. And I think most of us have spent time in this place because it's easy to get there, right? But that's why the incarnation, the humility of God, Emmanuel, God with us, coming to be with us, Jesus, Savior King, riding in on a donkey, Jesus, Savior born a baby, so incredibly important and central. It calls us back to humility again and again and again. And when we forget this, when we move away from this, we actually move away from what it is to be a Christian. Because we are those who say and identify ourselves as followers as the, of the one who rides a donkey. We declare that the king, the savior, the one we've been waiting for is Jesus, the one who came as a baby, helpless, in total humility. We are the people who confess that our Savior, Jesus, was born. And he came righteous and victorious, but he came humbly. And I hope this Christmas that we can be, we can be a people, we can be a church together, both Grace and Royal City, where we can go into this world righteous and victorious, but even before that, with humility. I hope this Christmas we can be a people who are thankful that God came to us. That Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Showing us the way, showing us the path of humility. And that we can be a people who humble ourselves and follow his lead into the world. To be a people who are known for our generosity, our faith, and above all, our humility. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you because you have come to us. You have spoken to us in the law of the Old, Test the Old Testament. You have challenged us with the words of the prophets. And you have shown us in Jesus what you are really like. Lord God, we praise you because you come to us in the here and now. You come to us through other people and their love and concern for us. You come to us through people who need your help. And you come to us as we worship you with your church. And Lord God, we praise you because you will be with us until the end. You will continue waiting for us to come back to you. And you will be there drawing us back to the humble path of peace. You will be with us at our hour of death and beyond. We praise you. 
the God who comes, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.